Welcome to Lo-Fi Lectionary. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Lo-Fi Lectionary. How you doing? Oh, I missed you guys so much last month. I missed this a lot. And, uh, but it's good to be back. I had a really, really crazy busy month at work and at home and, and it was kind of rough to be away, but you know, when you're lost and on your own, you can never surrender. So here we are and we're back. Um, we have a very special episode for you guys today. Uh, this is the lo-fi lectionary episode for Luke 11 and it's not going to be me. Pretty soon you're going to be hearing the voice of someone else. I, uh, invited a friend to come in and kind of be the guest storyteller, uh, for this episode. And the, the one who did it is a friend of mine named John Chafee. John is an incredible guy. Um, I met him while we were in seminary together uh, at Palmer Theological Seminary in West Philadelphia, if you're curious. And um, uh, just kind of latched on to him as just being a really good guy, a really sharp guy, and a really good friend. Uh, while we were living in Philadelphia. So I was excited as I asked around and tried to f- think, consider having someone else come in to be the guest narrator for a full episode. Uh, I thought of John and uh, I couldn't be happier with the way it came out. He did a really, really good job. So I'm excited to to share it with you guys. Just a little bit about John because I kind of want to promote him a little bit because I think uh, he does a lot of really, really good stuff. He puts a lot of good stuff into the world. So you can find out more about John at his website is the best place to go to. It's that John Chafee, T-H-A-T-J-O-H-N-C-H-A-F-F-E-E.com. And if you go to his website, you can actually read a lot of his writing, which is really, really good. You can also find links to his podcast, which is called Ambushed. And it's really, really good. His episodes are really short, at least compared to ours. So you might find that a nice change of pace. Um, Generally, what he does is he just kind of talks about um, things that are on his mind, things he's been studying. He's in the midst of a master's program at Princeton. um, So he's super sharp and he gets to study, I'm super jealous, a lot of medieval uh, mystical theology. And then he kind of shares his reflections on that in his podcast. So if you're into that kind of thing, it's great. If you're looking for an episode to start with, I love episode 25 of Ambushed, which is uh, where he shares his idea about being a reverent troublemaker with a crown in your pocket. And I can't think of a better way to describe John himself, just a reverent troublemaker. So go check it out. Um, Support him a lot. Um, I'm not worried uh, that uh, you might go over to his podcast and uh, love it more than mine because you're just getting more and more good stuff. Um, So uh, yeah. Oh, and the neatest thing about John is uh, that made me super jealous is uh, he, a few years ago, Um, got to quit his job and hike the entire Appalachian Trail. And I remember following his adventures on that and just being like, oh man, this guy gets to go hike all the way across the mountain. It's like he's in The Hobbit or something. I'm super jealous. But anyway, John, thank you so much for doing the episode. Uh, I'm really uh, good. I'm going to hand you off to to his episode in a second. But uh, just real quick, we'll be back with a kitchen episode later this week. It'll be a supersized one for both Luke 10 and Luke 11. And oh man, one of my all-time favorite Jesus moments is in Luke 11. So we're going to talk about that in the kitchen later this week. But um, I'm not going to hold you back anymore. Go, let's go right into it. Here is John Chafee with your story for Luke 11. I'll see you guys back later this week. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Lo-Fi Lectionary. 
My name is John Chafee, and I am the guest host for this chapter, for Luke chapter 11. And I have a few things to say about this chapter, and I hope you have the time to listen to all of this. But first, I want to make a, a statement, a comment. I hope you keep listening. This is a quality podcast by a quality guy. And I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about the usual host, Kevin. So Kevin is a fantastic guy, and he may not have the chance to share this with you, but I knew him back in the day in seminary, and this chap knows his Bible, and he's got the good insights. So I hope you keep listening throughout the rest of the book of Luke, and even after that. We'll see what book he does next, but lo-fi lectionary is quality, and uh, it's a privilege to be a part of it this time. So what I'm going to do is read each segment of the book of Luke in chapter 11 and give you some reflections, some of my own thoughts and some of my own research that I've done on this chapter. Okay. So without further ado, let's get started. So Luke chapter 11 starts with a teaching on prayer. It begins, One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, Even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers... If your son asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake instead. Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So Jesus is really on a roll here, isn't he? He starts off with teaching the Lord's Prayer. Which, if you know this prayer from before, you might notice that there's some differences in this version in Luke. Luke's manuscript seems to have some shorter renditions of this prayer. This doesn't necessarily mean that he didn't say the whole thing, but it just so happens that some of the manuscripts we have don't have the full prayer. But there's still some very key things that are happening in here. For instance, Right off the bat, he encourages the disciples to pray, Father. Or, in Aramaic, it would be, 
Abba. Now, Abba, in this sense, is really the term for daddy. He is, in this moment, through teaching on prayer, illustrating the the relationship that you have with God and the relationship that one might have should be one of a very close familial intimacy. This is a beautiful prayer that builds off of some earlier prayers of the Jewish tradition. But Jesus seems to say, let's get started with some familiar family terms. Now, it's fascinating then that he goes a little bit further after that and gives a a story about asking your neighbor for some bread. And then he goes on and says, if you who are with mixed motives know how to be good to your children, you can trust that God is willing and able to be good to you. This whole section on prayer is really asking another question. It is, well, in reality, two questions. One, is God close? And two, is God good? Because back in the day, the Greek mindset was that the gods are not close, and two, that the gods are not good. The stories of the Greek gods, those that were in charge in Roman, uh, in Roman culture, They all had the view of the divine that says the gods are far, far away. And either the gods are disinterested in what we are doing or they have malicious intent. And so here in this teaching on prayer, Jesus is saying two things. That the rich tradition that says that Yahweh is God is saying, yes, God is close and two, God is good. Fortunately, he also throws in a little bit of poetry here, or at least things that can be read rather poetically. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. This passage is a lot about searching, and that in the searching, you are finding what you're looking for. This is a beautiful passage to get started in chapter 11. But let's read on. Verse 14 picks up here. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him, asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can this kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then, so then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. 
But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor which, in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and it does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. So this next section pulls up or, or jumps in almost as though the last section didn't even happen. It's almost as though right after this conversation about prayer, Jesus is immediately going and driving out a demon that was taking over a man. This might be a redaction or an edit that Luke had, or maybe he just wasn't good at transitions when he was writing this specific part. But it also might be that Jesus has been doing a lot of these teachings and these miracles out in public, where it's easy to go from one crowd to another to speak with one small group of people and then be in the midst of a whole crew of others. I believe that's also what's possible as a happening here. But this whole section, this part where the crowd are asking Jesus, under whose authority is he really driving out spirits? I think it's a legitimate question. When you see someone coming along and doing impressive or grandiose things that clearly have got a spiritual tone to it, you, of course, would question, would doubt. And so sometimes I hear preachers say that this is really not a good thing to do. That if they were there, this crowd should have been obviously paying attention to the fact that Jesus was the Son of God. However, we are looking at this book most likely knowing how the story ends. But to the people in this crowd... They didn't know Jesus, and perhaps this was their very first interaction. And so for some of the people, here in chapter 11, they may not have been around for all of the experiences in chapters 1 through 10. But you know what? Jesus has got a fair amount of patience, because then he takes the conversation and turns it around and makes it into a teaching moment. In this passage... Jesus seems very, very concerned with helping people to realize that there are forces at work and that the kingdom of God has very much to do with liberation, with setting people free, and with getting rid of the demons, the shadows, the things that hold us back, the things that slow us down, the things that keep us from thriving. And unfortunately, this whole teaching seems to fall on deaf ears, at least for this one person. Because at the very end of it, in verse 27, 
It says, As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. This woman was very much impressed with all the teaching that Jesus just had, saying that a house divided cannot stand on its own, that he is the one who, with the finger pointing, is making the kingdom happen. But this woman does what we all do and says, wow, this man is impressive. His mother must be very impressed, must be very happy, must be very proud. But Jesus spins it around and doesn't make it into a miracle or a teaching that you can just sit back and observe. And then in verse 28, he replies, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of the Lord, the word of God, and obey it. Jesus turns the whole thing. Yes, it was a conversation about who is capable of building the kingdom, but it's, he also turned a moment around and said, the word of God is not something just to be observing. It is something to be lived. It is something to be engaged with. It is something to be diving with your whole personhood into. Jesus is not in favor of people just being standby people, with just being observers, with just being spectators. Instead, he turns it around, and it's almost like he adds another beatitude here. Blessed are those who hear the word of the Lord and obey it. Verse 29 then picks up with, As the crowds increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will be the Son of Man to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. Wow. So this passage, with Jonah at the center of it, is an incredibly offensive one to its audience. So here we have Jesus using one of the most famous books of the Hebrew Scriptures to help illustrate a point about how that audience of his that he had there that day really needed to get its head on straight. Now, in order to understand how shocking this would have been, let me tell you a little bit about Jonah. Jonah was one of those stories that probably probably was told around a bonfire in the evening. It reads just like a camp story in some ways. But it's a story about a prophet that chose to run the opposite direction of where he was told to go. God shows up and speaks to Jonah and says, I want you to go to Nineveh and to preach repentance and the kindness and goodness of God. And 
Joan decides not to, so he runs the opposite direction, and so the story goes that we all know. But his running away is something I would like to sympathize with. I think that Jonah had an understandable reaction. Nineveh was one of the main cities or towns of the Assyrian Empire, and the Assyrians were known for going to a town and killing everyone, and then going to the next town, grabbing the mayor or the officials, bringing them back and say, hey, you see this pile of skulls? Unless you surrender, the same thing's going to happen to you. And Nineveh was one of the main capitals of the Assyrian Empire. So what God is saying here is, hey, Jonah, I want you to go not just to the worst of the worst. I want you to go to the capital of the worst of the worst people. So, of course, it's understandable Jonah might go the other way. But then the storm happens while he's on a boat. He's swallowed by a whale, stays there for three days, gets spit up, and then he decides to finally turn around, come back to Nineveh. But the shocking thing is, in the story of Jonah, Nineveh repents in a way that Jerusalem never did. Not only did the people of Nineveh, the people of this major city of the Assyrian Empire, the worst of the worst, they turn back to God, they throw on sackcloth and ashes, and not only do they do that, but the animals do it too. And you can definitely see that as like a campfire story. Even the animals repent in a way that the people of Jerusalem in the Old Testament never did. Jonah is an incredibly shocking book. And so for Jesus to say that the queen of the south, for Jesus to say that the people of Nineveh are going to stand someday and condemn people for not following God. Oh, that would have hit so incredibly hard. Jesus knows how to be a really good storyteller. Jesus knows how to be a really good teacher. And here he is using storytelling to illustrate a point about how stubborn his audience can sometimes be. Whew, that's heavy. Let's keep going. Verse 33 and following goes like this. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body is also full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body is also full of darkness. See to it, then, that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it is dark, it will be just as full as light as when the lamp shines its light on you. Jesus loves using imagery to make most of his points. Not only is he often speaking to an uneducated crowd, but he might also be speaking every so often to a young crowd that maybe even hasn't had a chance to study or to be educated. And so it's very profound that Jesus seems to go, 
the way of images, especially images that everyone would have known, such as a lamp. But here, Jesus is using comments about light and darkness to talk about the good that is within us, the good that we see. He's making comments here about the things that we look at, the things that we take into ourselves, the things that we consume are the very things that fill us either with darkness or with light. In this sense, the teaching of Jesus sounds very close to certain strains of Eastern religions, but this really shouldn't be a surprise to us because Jesus is in the midst of a Middle Eastern culture. Comments of light and darkness bring up ancient, ancient symbols. If you remember back to Genesis, God is the one who says, let there be light. And that light breaks into the world in the midst of a chaotic and dark universe. Jesus is playing here with comments of light and darkness, talking about things that are of God and things that are not. But the beautiful thing is that the light in this passage is always stronger than the darkness. And so here he is using the same ancient imagery, the poetry of light and darkness, to encourage all the people in attendance that are listening to him at this point just to be intentional about the way that they go about their life, to be intentional about the things that they are taking in, the things that they allow to affect their inner self. Jesus, in this sense, is an incredibly pastoral, but also incredibly, incredibly pragmatic teacher. And here we are, rounding the bend with the last section of this chapter. Verse 37 and on goes like this. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at a table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats of the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves which people will walk over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. 
So you testified that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge you yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Wow. This is like Jesus is a terrible, terrible dinner guest. After all of the things that just happened at the beginning of this chapter, all the teachings, the comments on prayer, his comments about, man, fill yourself with light, not darkness. Let the ancient, ancient goodness of God be in you, not the chaoticness of the dark. Jesus then is invited over for a dinner party with the Pharisees, and it doesn't take long before it seems like he just has to say something. The Pharisees and the experts in the law were the religious elite. They were the ones that should know kindness and grace. They should be the ones that have the most compassion because they would know the Hebrew scriptures that pointed them in those ways towards those very virtues. And so what we have here, fascinatingly enough, are one, two, three, four, five different woes. Now there's something happening here because in the number five, Jesus is making a reference, potentially, to the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, wait, G to the E to the L to the N to the D. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy <laughs> to give them a new law. Now, in the book of Matthew, this has to do with the Sermon on the Mount. A new law on top of a new mountaintop. But here, the Pharisees and the experts are getting a new number five. But this time it's five woes. W-O-E. It's like the opposite of blessed are you, it's woe to you. Instead of saying happy are you, it's cursed are you. And man, here is Jesus being a dinner guest who just can't help but say something because it's irking him. And here he is dropping all of these woes on his hosts. The Pharisees are the ones that should be, as I said, the ones that understand that it's important to love God and to seek to do justice at all times. Jesus is the one who seems to reiterate that you should not care about having the respectful seats and being the most well-known or having the best reputation. 
Jesus even goes so far to say is, you all are just going to be walked on after you passed away. No one will recognize or notice or grieve you. And then he goes even further and says, you who say that you know the Bible are the very ones that killed all of the messengers that God has sent beforehand. And then he goes even further to say, those of you who are scribes and Pharisees and lawyers, you think you're in the kingdom, but you're not. Oh, Jesus is not mincing any words and he goes for the throat, especially among the religious elite. God seems to have, at least as revealed in the person of Jesus, a lot of compassion for people. But he seems to have a shorter wick, less patience for those who he knows should know better because they've been reading the very scriptures. This passage The woes in Luke, and there's also some woes in Matthew, really shine a different light on Jesus. And so in that sense, one of the reiterating questions in the lo-fi lectionary lectionary is, what is God like in this chapter? Well, that's a tough one, because in this chapter, God is gracious, yeah, and he teaches people how to pray, and he teaches people that God is close. He teaches people that God is good. But he also seems to say that God's not at all afraid to tell people that they need to repent, and that maybe your enemies are better people than you are. That's that sign of Jonah part. He seems to have no problem reminding people that you can be incredibly close to the scriptures and yet completely miss God. And so when we think about this chapter and when we read these stories, when we reflect on that question of what is God like in this chapter, we really get a mixed view. God is kind and teaching But God is also rough and sometimes impatient. And I don't think all of these things are contradictory. It is possible to be kind and compassionate, yet also be impatient, it seems, with people that should know better. What we have in this story, in this chapter, is something that I love to reflect on. In the scriptures, we read that God is very much like a lion and a lamb. And there are times in scripture, especially even in chapter 11 right here, that it seems like you read this paragraph and you could experience God like a lion. And then you could read this paragraph and experience God like a lamb. And then the next one, a lion, and next one, a lamb. And we have to hold all of them together. Because they're both true. They're both things that need to be held incredibly close. Yes, God is terrifying, but God is also... So compassionate. So wanting to just heal 
but sometimes God's also got to cut. And man, that's hard, but that's like a surgeon. The human brain loves to put things in either-or categories, to say that God is either a lion or a lamb. And yet here in Luke chapter 11, it's almost like back and forth. Each paragraph is trying to put both of those images right next to each other. So may you, as a result of reflecting on this chapter, come to think that, okay, God is incredibly close. God is Abba. And that God is good, that God really wants us to recognize that he is even more good than we are to our own children. God also seems very concerned with letting us know that, wow, God is a very different being than the demons that chase us down. This chapter seems very much concerned with helping us to recognize that maybe sometimes our enemies are better people than we are. That sometimes even our enemies are able to repent better than we. This chapter seems very much concerned with reminding us to fill our lives with the light of God. And this is poet. This is poetry fill our lives with the goodness and the beauty and truth and love and all of these miraculous virtues that really are supernatural when you see them embodied in someone. And then this chapter also just reminds us that, hey, be careful of how you read your scriptures because you can be so close to them and sometimes miss the point. And so always watch yourself to be careful that you're always living a life of compassion and grace and love and truth and mercy and goodness and kindness, faithfulness and joy and etc. Hmm. So listen and listen well. This chapter and this book are profound. May you read the scriptures in such a way that it impacts you and that it makes you stop and question, man, what is God like? Okay? Let me close by saying thank you to Kevin Lester. As I've said before, this chap knows his stuff and he is a quality guy. I hope you all keep listening. And Kevin, thank you for giving me the opportunity to put my spin or flair on your lo-fi lectionary. This is a remarkable privilege that you even think I'm capable of doing it well. So cheers to you. Cheers to you, listener. And I will catch you at some other point, maybe. All right? Much love, grace, and peace. And may all good things come to you. Amen. Hi, everyone. I just want to say a quick thank you to you for listening to this episode of Lo-Fi Lectionary. If you liked the podcast, please help us out. You can review, subscribe, and share the podcast any way you can. Um, the more people we get in on the game, the funner this is going to be. Uh, if you want to participate in the discussion for this episode, you can come visit our website at kevinlester.net and follow the links to the podcast and then to the link for this episode.
Um, you can also find our podcast on Facebook, and we can discuss and, and keep things going on there. Uh, just search Facebook for Lo-Fi Electionary, and you'll find us. You can also get in touch with me, Kevin, directly at lofi at kevinlester.net. And that's lofi with no dash. So L-O-F-I at kevinlester.net. And you can also find me on Twitter at lofi kevin with no dash again. So at lofi kevin. Um, that's kind of it. So thank you for coming and we'll see you guys next episode. Thank you for listening.